And now, The Federal Drive with Tom Temin. Hello, and thanks for joining us on this Friday, September 8th, 2023, seven minutes past the hour. I'm Tom Temin. Our producers are Eric White and Peter Masurlian, our digital editors, Daisy Thornton and Darris Lauderdale. Coming up in this hour of The Federal Drive, nothing from the government comes without gobs of documentation. Plus, this team from HHS has spent five years taking on the rural crisis of opioid use. Those stories and much more ahead during this hour of The Federal Drive. But first, fixing defense acquisition might be a perennial topic at the Pentagon, but Rada Plum, the DOD's Undersecretary for Acquisition and Sustainment, says the DOD just needs to make better use of its current systems. What ideas does she have to make acquisition work better? Federal News Network's Alexandra Lohr found out at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. All right, Alex, what did you find out? Well, it was interesting because what Secretary Plum was saying is that they have a lot of good systems in place right now. They just kind of need to coordinate them and make them work together. She talked about adaptive acquisition framework. In other words, putting things together, making them work together. She talked about middle-tier acquisition, other transaction authority, the software acquisition pathway, all just taking things that have been developed to speed acquisition and making them work together so that the process goes a little bit more smoothly. Here's what she had to say. We're employing everything from MTAs and OTAs to the software acquisition pathway to create a range of hybrid strategies that enable scale. The key is we want to do that deliberately, focused first and foremost on the challenge we're trying to solve and the end result. So we don't want this to just be about more OTAs. It's really about leveraging all of these authorities to scale capabilities. Yeah, they've got a big toolbox and they have to know what they want to build and then pick the right tools, I guess is what she's saying. Did she mention anything specific here? She did mention a couple of programs. One of them is called CAPS. It's the Competitive Advantage Pathfinders Program. And what it does is use cross-department teams. They say they're fixing the problem while they're delivering capability. It's kind of like fixing a plane while it's flying. One example she gave was a program called Medusa. It's a joint project run by both the Air Force and the Navy, and it's miniature ship-based electronic modules that are delivering capabilities in two years and then looking at accelerated delivery for the actual program in two to four years. So by defense acquisition terms, pretty fast. What else did she talk about? The second big issue on her list was barriers to integration and really just looking at problems for joint operability. That's kind of the catchword now. You have JADC2. All of the services are trying to make sure, particularly their software systems, work well together. You want to not have stove piping. You want to reduce barriers to entry and to work to make sure that there's compliance and security across the different services and their systems. She mentioned a specific team that works on that. So inside of ANS, we stood up this acquisition integration interoperability team, and their job is to align service-specific systems acquisition to meet joint requirements. So what does that mean? That office runs what we call an integrated acquisition portfolio review. It takes a capability and a mission thread and really looks at the underlying service-specific programs, identifies where there are gaps or seams, areas that we need investment for integration, and focuses on identifying resources for that integration with particular focus on year of execution funding. Well, the whole thing has to add up to the fact that JADC2 is a Pentagon-wide program, but each armed service has its own component of JADC2, which has the flavor of that component, but they have to all add up to JADC2, and I think this is her strategy for helping get there. What about recruiting and people to take this on that have that kind of mindset to try all the tools in the toolbox? 
Well, that was the third part of her strategy for improving the system overall. And she mentioned a couple different ways that she feels like they can help recruiting. One is obviously incentives, and they're working on different incentives. And then they've got a new program called the Defense Civilian Training Corps. It started in June, and the first cohort of students is now in progress. And it's a ROTC-type program. It's at various universities, and it follows the scholarship for service scheme where they'll give you money to go to school if you'll agree to go be a defense acquisition professional. None of this happens without the right people in the right places. So I'll just start by saying that we're really focused on this end-to-end. So we're looking at expanding recruitment through programs like our Defense Civilian Training Corps, on building more modular innovation-focused training. Um, That's work going on at DAU and how we can create the right kind of incentives to do that innovative work, encouraging the right kind of risk-taking. And she mentioned Defense Acquisition University, DAU. Does that have a part in the plan she's outlined? That is a big part of the plan. And this year, DAU really expanded its online offerings so they could get to the workforce wherever they were. They've done a whole lot to expand what they're offering and make themselves more useful in that training process for the workforce. Here's Undersecretary Plum. We're working on kind of bringing in the generation of the future. That has two advantages for us. First, we just need a continuous acquisition and sustainment workforce to continue doing the work, but also brings in a new audience, right? Digital natives, people who are much Mm -hmm. more familiar with the range of the software-enabled systems we're talking about. And we have a couple of different programs there. I mentioned DCTC, the Defense Civilian Training Corps, which is essentially like ROTC for civilians, um, focused on the acquisition community. And once again, that was Rada Plum, the DOD's Undersecretary for Acquisition and Sustainment. Well, so there's a lot of things going on, a lot of initiatives going on, almost as silos and stovepipes, and she's seeking to integrate them, again, from the standpoint not of each individual channel of opportunity, like JADC2 or what DAU is doing, but let's start with the problem that we need to solve, like a JADC2, what's the best pieces of the acquisition system to bring to bear on that particular problem at that time? It kind of echoes some things I've been hearing from different defense professionals over the summer. We have the tools. We've been given these tools. Now let's just use them and make sure we use them right, use them often, and get the process into a system where we can deliver capabilities a lot faster than we have been. Yeah, I wonder how many people actually look at all the pages of the DFAR from time to time, because pretty much anything you want to do is in there, but often people just use a few sections. You know, maybe that's part of the problem. Old story. I'm thinking you probably have it memorized. Well, not memorized, but I have read it. <laughs> if, you wanna, if you're an insomniac, I recommend it. Federal News Network's Alexandra Lohr, thanks so much. Thanks, Tom. And be sure to check out her story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Still to come, this team from HHS has spent five years taking on the rural crisis of opioid use. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. The opioid scourge is as much a rural as an urban problem. The Health Resources and Services Administration, HRSA, part of Health and Human Services, has spent five years and hundreds of millions of dollars in grants to rural health services providers to help battle a nearly overwhelming problem. For its work, the HRSA team leading the effort has been named a finalist in this year's Service to America Medals program. Joining me in studio with the story... 
HRSA's Rural Strategic Initiatives Director, Megan Meacham. Ms. Meacham, good to have you with us. Hi, thank you for having us. And Team Lead, Sarah O'Donnell. Ms. O'Donnell, good to have you. Pleasure to be here. And Deputy Director Allison Hutchins is the third member. She's not with us today. But let's get to the crux of the problem. Just tell us, what is the opioid scourge problem in rural America? I think we tend to focus on the cities a lot. Yeah, Tom, absolutely. So back in 2018, when this initiative was created, we had data showing us what drug overdose deaths were occurring across the nation. And at the time, the backdrop was that in rural communities, there were actually a higher rate of deaths from overdose than in our urban communities. So like you said, you often think of urban communities, population centers as being where we should invest our funding and our attention. But really, we found this gap and it was something we wanted to address. So we created the Rural Communities Opioid Response Program. I guess that belief maybe is a leftover of the crack cocaine days, which was mainly an urban problem, perhaps. That could be part of it. But it sounds like it took a data-driven approach to this to discover the fact that there was this problem that, again, per capita was worse in rural than in urban. Absolutely. Yep. So CDC tracks overdose data deaths, and we knew what the numbers were. We also have rural health research centers that we fund through our office, and they were able to track some of the data and show us what was happening in rural communities, along with not just the actual rate of overdose deaths, but the other challenges that rural communities face, such as workforce shortages or longer transportation distances to get to providers, fewer medication-assisted treatment providers in particular. And this is probably a good point at which to explain how HRSA itself works. You don't deliver health services directly like some government agencies. Yeah. So the way that we get funding out to communities to support them in addressing the crisis is through a grant mechanism. And so basically what happens is we put out what's called a notice of funding opportunity, which describes the purpose of what we would like communities to be doing to address their needs. And then they put in applications and through kind of an external unbiased process, the applications get evaluated and then funding goes out. But what's really special about the programs that we have is that we write those funding opportunities, particularly to be flexible, understanding that if you've seen one rural community, you've seen one rural community. And so we make sure that we work in the ability for these communities to really address the needs and the unique needs that they have, you know, on the ground. And just from an operational perspective, there are a network of providers that are funded by HRSA, I guess maybe state funding goes into them, that exist for general health care in rural areas. Did the grants go to the same institutions to expand their services, or did you also maybe grow new places that could help with specifically the opioids? We for sure grew new places. So we have many grantees that this is the first time they've ever received federal funds, which is really exciting because we're opening up a new world for these organizations and giving them new opportunities to serve the people living in their communities. And then kind of by the same token, we provide them a lot of support every step of the way. So we have a whole team of project officers who work with grantees every single day to make sure that they understand, you know, the web (laughs) of the bureaucracy and the complex federal grant granting requirements. And then we also have technical assistance for these awardees as well. So especially for our new folks who are joining the federal family, they're very well supported. And is the federal funding to these existing and new organizations their only funding or do the states partner with you also? So I would say it's definitely a collaborative approach. We provide one of the pots of funding. So as Sarah said, some of these grantees, our 
programs are kind of their first entrance into the federal funding, or, or it might be the first time with HRSA funding. Maybe they've only received SAMHSA funding in the past. So we really also work to emphasize that complementary approach and making sure that what our funds are doing are complementing and not duplicating what the other funds are doing. So we hear from grantees telling us, you know, with the SAMHSA state funds or with any other funds that we have, we're able to do, you know, these amazing things. And then where we're able to take and leverage your funds is filling these gaps of the things we're not able to do. So we really are looking at that. You know, we're trying to be good stewards of federal dollars and making sure that they can have a whole of community approach. Because duplication of grants or services can be a problem, too, in expending federal dollars. And you want to make sure your dollars are uniquely used. Correct. And that's what's really neat about our program is that so many of the other funding comes down. And it's, again, it's more either population centric, you know, population based hitting the larger cities, or it's coming through multiple streams before it gets out to the communities, whereas ours is direct funding straight to the communities to address their needs. We are speaking with Megan Meacham. She's director of the Rural Strategic Initiatives Division at the Health Resources and Services Administration. And with Sarah O'Donnell is a team lead there. They, along with Allison Hutchings, are finalists in this year's Service to America Medals program. And let's talk about opioid problem itself. What do these organizations, now that they're funded, what do they do? What kind of services do they actually provide? A lot of it depends on exactly what they need, but we cover the whole range. So from prevention services, we have grantees that work with children in schools to prevent opioid use when they become adults. There's a wide variety of treatment services that are offered. So for opioid use in particular, we know that the evidence-based approach is through medication-assisted treatment. And so we have a lot of grantees who are supporting people in receiving medication-assisted treatment training providers to provide it, and then supporting those providers so that they don't kind of feel alone and isolated when they're in a rural community and faced with a patient that has opioid use disorder. We also support psychostimulant use. We have a whole program that's focused there, and those grants really help folks take both a mental health approach and a contingency management approach, which are kind of the evidence-based methods for addressing psychostimulant use. And then recovery services, so providing recovery housing, setting up recovery community organizations, creating pathways for people in recovery to make sure that they can access housing and jobs. And I think what's really great about a lot of the work that our grantees are doing is that it's all-encompassing. And so we really encourage folks to think about the whole human. So it's great if you're receiving treatment for your opioid use disorder, but it doesn't help if you don't have care for your kids or you don't have food or you don't have somewhere to live. And so as part of our programs, we support our grantees in addressing kind of that whole environment in which these individuals are living so they can really be successful in recovery. Right, because there are economic and social factors in rural areas. And a lot of rural areas of the United States, small towns and stuff, you know, you ride through them, they look poor. They look like, you know, time left them, the factory closed 25 years ago, this kind of thing. Yeah, I mean, they face a lot of challenges. I think it's also important to note that rural communities have a special sort of resilience, and the work that we're seeing done there every single day is just truly inspiring. And so, yes, they face a lot of challenges, economic challenges, you know, distance to care. Megan named several of those. Access to health workforce. There's just not as many people living there, right? So not as many people to do the jobs or people leave, get their education and becoming a medical provider and then don't return. 
But at the same time, the dedication and the resilience of our organizations in these rural communities is is just amazing. And the way that the community comes together to help these folks who are suffering some, from substance use disorder is, is incredible. How do you measure the program? How do you know you're having a positive effect? I mean, it's one thing to witness activity, but is there some kind of a metric that says, yes, we're making progress here? Yeah, so just like every federal program, we have performance metrics. We collect data from our grantees. So, you know, some of the things we look at is even just how many people receive direct services. So we know that our last full grant year of data from our grantees, over 2 million rural residents received some sort of direct service, prevention, treatment, recovery service. We know how many, you know, that more than 112,000 individuals received medication-assisted treatment that might otherwise not have received it without these programs working in their communities. I think it's also important to note that it's a lot of work for our grantees to collect all of this data, and we use it every single day. We use it to make sure that we're giving them the technical assistance that they need. We use it to figure out what new programs we need to put out. And so it's just so fundamental to our program is the data that we collect, not only because we report it out, but because we use it in our daily operations to make sure we're doing the best we can for the communities we serve. And do they submit it and do you collect it online? At least there's not a lot of paper involved here. Correct. We definitely have an automated electronic system. You know, we have our own system of how we're collecting the data. And then we actually have an evaluator as well who helps us with kind of like making sure that the data is clean and does the analytics of the data, helps us determine what some of the best practices are based on the data, as Sarah said, you know, helps us determine where maybe technical assistance is needed if we're not hitting certain benchmarks or seeing some of the data that we think we should be seeing, you know, where can we offer more assistance to the grant recipients to just help, again, make sure we're being the best stewards of federal dollars and having the best impact that we can. And will this go on forever? Is there an endpoint to the program or, I mean, opioids are still around. So we definitely cannot speak to the federal budget. Um, that is, you know, who we, can? We, do, <laughs> we do what we're um, what we're given um, for as long as it is decided that this funding should continue to come to us at HRSA. We will be happy to continue managing this program and meeting the needs of rural communities. Megan Meacham is director of the Rural Strategic Initiatives Division at the Health Resources and Services Administration. Thanks so much for joining me. Yeah, Thank you, Tom. Sarah O'Donnell is team lead there. Good to have you in. Thank you so much. And they, along with Allison Hutchings, the deputy director, are finalists in this year's Service to America Medals program. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Listen to the Federal Drive on your device. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Still to come, agencies are leaning into artificial intelligence, but not into chat GPT. But first, nothing comes from the government without gobs of documentation. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. The Cybersecurity Maturity Model Certification Program has been in gestation at the Defense Department longer than a baby elephant. CMMC is still not operational, but boy, it has produced documents. Just out, new scoping documents. And do contractors need to read them? Well, joining me in studio with some answers, Holland and Knight contracting attorney Eric Crucius. Eric, good to have you back. Great to be here. Thanks. These documents, scoping documents, these are just out. What exactly are they and why are they important? It's really interesting. They were out. They were released on OMB's website, and then they were pulled back. So the suspicion is that there were draft or final draft documents. I think it's still important to kind of look at them because they're probably final draft documents in that 
how CMMC is is going to be very close to what those documents are. And what they do is they show kind of how CMMC is going to be scoped, and they also show how assessments should go for the different three levels and which controls are going to be utilized for those three levels. So there's a lot of things were confirmed, but there was also some new information in there that I think contractors should pay attention to. The idea of scoping, there's three levels of scoping. What does that actually mean? Yeah, so there are three CMMC levels. That is all but confirmed. And for each level, what assets that a contractor has is going to be within scope. So for level one, for instance, specialized assets won't be in scope. And that's kind of Internet of Things, government furnished equipment, things like that. For level two, normally those specialized assets will also not be in scope. But for level three, they will be in scope. And then that's one way to look at scoping. Another way to look at scoping is which part of your organization is going to be covered by a CMMC. CMMC doesn't have to be a whole organization certification. It could just be essentially a certification that covers the assets you want to cover. And those are the assets that are going to have the information in them that is has to be covered, like CY. Right. So for companies that have commercial operations, commercial businesses may not need to come under CMMC as long as there's no crossover. Right. Networks and data between commercial and government. Right. They could have this little section of their company or their IT system that has CUI in it that is covered by CMMC and everything else will not be scoped at all. So you would need an enclave almost. Essentially, yeah. To use the technical term for you know that walled off area of your – maybe put it in the cloud and then it's not on your data center. That's exactly right. All right. And then the level three is the big contractors, the ones that are all in government. Right. Those are kind of the common name – I won't name any of them, but the common name contractors that everyone knows about that build ships, that build airplanes, things like that. They could also cover smaller contractors, maybe IT providers that have specialized information that's important to the government. So we'll just have to see how many folks are covered by Level 3, but that's going to be a subset of NIST Special Publication 800-172. Looks like about 24 controls, at least according to these close to final draft documents. So essentially they tell you what you need to do to be CMMC compliant depending on the level one, two, three that you're at. Yes, and it's kind of interesting like who determines whether you're compliant or not. For level one, it's a self-certification. There's nothing to stop a contractor from hiring somebody to come in and help them get there. But in the end, it's going to be the contractor putting their signature on the line, certifying themselves to DOD. For level two, there's a third party that would come in for most level two. Most yeah, this level whole two. assessment scheme, is that up and running? I mean, there were people that were getting certified to be third-party assessors. Do they still exist and are they still certified? Yes. Actually, the ecosystem, as they call it, is growing. The CMMC accreditation body, now known as the CyberAB, holds a call every month where they discuss how many folks are in the ecosystem. And it looks like the third-party assessors, there's more than 40 now. And that's not just assessor teams, but some assessors may have more than one team to their name. So there could be even more, and there's a lot more in the pipeline. And then for level three, you can only get a level three assessment after you've gotten a level two assessment with a third-party assessor. Level three is the government itself certifying to those additional 24 controls. Got it. And those are really serious controls. I mean, these are things that you would expect the large contractors probably have in place anyway, as a matter of course. That's right. And I think for the large contractors, CMMC is not going to be a heavy lift. They're doing these things already. I think where we'll see struggles are the small, medium-sized contractors that don't have these robust IT systems. And those are the ones that are most vulnerable. And those are the ones that our foreign enemies know are the most vulnerable. So those are the ones that are attacked most frequently. Sure. We're speaking with attorney Eric Crucius. He's a partner at the law firm Holland and & Knight. And you said there's some new things after the papers, after the certification 
scoping documents were withdrawn and reissued. What is new here that people might not have known a couple months ago? So one interesting thing is that for level one and level two, they talk about a self, well, for level one, a self-assessment report, and for level two, an assessment report, that it's not clear whether that's a separate report that a contractor has to generate or that's automatically generated based on which controls they're compliant with. But the assessment report could be this significant new document that contractors have to produce in order to demonstrate that they are past those controls. So that's one thing that's really interesting. There's also talk about conditional assessments, which we knew about. It's unclear whether those conditional assessments will allow a contractor to perform absent a final assessment that is good for three years. The conditional assessments demonstrate that they're mostly there, but there's still things that are outstanding, and they're called plans of action and milestones that they have to finish within a certain period of time. There are a lot of references to regulations within these documents that have not been released yet. So we're anticipating a full suite of regulations that will come out to support CMMC. Yeah, I mean, every time they come out with some of these new policies for contractors, they run hundreds of pages. Right. And, you know, they do deal with also external service providers. You mentioned it earlier that a lot of contractors, and I think it's a smart decision, will offload a lot of the storage of their CUI to a third party who is already set up for this. And there are specialized providers out there who do that. And according to these documents, it looks like these third-party providers will have to have a CMMC assessment or a FedRAMP moderate or the equivalent of that. So that's not surprising, but it's interesting to see it in black and white because we didn't know which way DOD would go with that. So the Microsoft Azure Cloud, AWS, Google Cloud, and some of the others have that moderate certification under FedRAMP. So that would seem like a safe harbor here. That's right. But that wouldn't take care of all the controls because some of the controls deal with the interconnection between the contractor and those safe harbors. Some of the controls are purely physical, access to the contractor's physical space where COI may reside. Plus user activity, I imagine, must be covered in some of these documents. Absolutely. Passwords, how much permission each user has, exactly to your point. So those safe harbors will take care of a lot of the controls, but not all of them. And how will all of this back up to contracting officers? I mean, there's some rulemaking that has to happen to make this effective, I presume. And I don't know what the state of that is. But at some point, will this get into the FAR such that DOD contracts will have this clause referencing all of these scoping documents? Absolutely. And the DOD clause, the DFARS clause, is at OMB right now. So it's the last stop before it's released. Now, we don't know if it's going to be released as a proposed rule or a final interim rule. If it's released as a final interim rule, we could have CMMC sometime this fall. If it's a proposed rule, it's going to be a little bit of a longer time period, but that is okay because most contractors are not ready for it yet. Right. I mean, the proposed period for comments could be 30 days or 60 days, and then they would turn it around in another 30 or 60 days as a final rule. Right. And I anticipate they'll get a ton of comments in this, so could it be even longer than that? So we could see CMMC towards the end of 2024, beginning of 2025, if it comes out as a proposed rule this fall. And not to get too arcane, but could the comments on the proposed rule then back up through the pipes of the system and then find their way into redoing or alteration of the scoping documents in the first place? Absolutely, yes. <laughs> That's why these are not final documents, but it's a great place to look to see to start. And we should also know that this is just one of many things that are happening right now. There's some FAR rules that have just passed through OMB that will institute new cybersecurity controls on non-DOD contractors and reporting requirements if there's a breach. So we haven't seen those rules yet, but they have just passed through OMB. So I anticipate we'll have more to say on that soon. Yeah. And then I guess the question is, does all this get harmonized at some point? So this is doing business with the government. 
here's the scope of cyber you've got to have. Right. You remember when the FAR came out, the idea was to harmonize contracting across the government. Here we are with each agency having its own version of the FAR that layers on top of the FAR. It's the same thing happening with cybersecurity, unfortunately, where we have different agencies with different requirements. I'm hoping at some point they will be harmonized because it gets very difficult for contractors to follow the bouncing ball for all these different agencies. It'll help put my kids through college, but it won't help the contractors very much. Yes, that harmonization, as they say, would be far out. Attorney (laughs) Eric Crucius is a partner at Holland & Knight. As always, thanks so much. Thank you. And we'll post this interview along with a link to the CMMC documents at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Still to come, agencies are leaning into artificial intelligence, but not into chat GPT. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. When we need help, we turn to government. When government needs help, they turn to Federal News Network. Federal News Network, helping feds meet their mission. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. The Labor Department uses artificial intelligence to make workers' comp forms more accurate. The Census Bureau uses it to crunch big data sets. And the Office of Personnel Management applies AI to updating decades-old job descriptions. During a recent GuyTech event, Federal News Network's Jason Miller heard from these agencies' CIOs about their AI activities. Panelists were Skip Bailey of Census, Gundeep Alawalia of Labor, Michael Anthony of the National Transportation Safety Board, and Guy Cavallo of OPM. First, you'll hear Census's Bailey. There's two levels in which AI and machine learning are two areas where we probably are focused. One is in, uh, in how we handle the analysis of data that we collect and there's a lot of uh, interesting work that's being done on doing that with some machine learning models that help to crunch through these massive data sets. The other side of it is actually for like chat programs because one of you know because they're essentially crawlers and they get their data by crawling, the attribution of the correct or the best source is not always included, and so. It's actually become incumbent on us to become the most obvious choice for the crawlers. And so you kind of have to play that game so that your data is the one when someone asks a question. Because we see stuff come up, and we've actually done studies where uh, there's data that's really our data, and it's being reported incorrectly by a third party, and that's how the chat program gets information. And so we're really starting to take that change and that challenge to become preeminent in so that the crawlers are coming to the original source first or best or easiest. You know, you have to be the downhill approach. So it's probably on both of those sides that we're uh, kind of deep into it right now. We have deployed uh, artificial intelligence and machine learning in various processes. And I'll give you one example where we've used it very successfully is to autocode OSHA's injuries. So when injuries are reported, right? So somebody says, I have a headache. Somebody says, my head throbs, et cetera. These have to be coded in order to understand what is happening from an injury perspective. 97% of these uh, are now autocoded using uh, machine learning. And 3 to 4% have to be flagged um, for humans to intervene. So necessarily, we have tried to use these technologies to push humans from low-value work to high-value work, right? Now, the other side of this is we have had programs where things have gone horribly wrong. 
where there is a bias and we trained the AI on a biased data set, right? So just because AI is good, it, it was also good at exasperating that bias, right? So um, we are also investing in responsible AI frameworks and uh, uh, Krista Kennard and my uh, emerging tech uh, uh, branches is, is uh, collaborating with Stanford University, et cetera, to build frameworks so that it's not a once and done, right? I mean, we, we often are susceptible to, in IT, is the, the once and done mentality, right? Uh, just give me this new app and I don't want to see you again for a few years. And that has to change uh, in many ways. Anyone else want to jump in? Otherwise, I have another question. I was, I was going to add one quick one that we're just launching a pilot on that, that I think every agency is going to want us to be successful in. Federal employee position descriptions. <laughs> Show me anybody, o- that, anybody that wants to rewrite from you know, the 1980s a position description to today. We're going to experiment with AI on coming up with good the position descriptions because uh, the human way of doing it across the federal government is not succeeding. We have a question. Tell them who you are. So uh, Dominic Sale, I am uh, with REI Systems. My question is about customer experience. We have talked a lot. I've heard many mentions of customer in the abstract, but no discussion yet really about all the policy objectives and what the president has made, if not the top, one of the top objectives of his administration can anyone talk about what your thoughts are about the CX um, policies and where you think you are and what we in the vendor community can do to help make it a reality? I would say it's uh, long overdue. <laughs> Some agencies, I think, are, are being pushed away. Other agencies are further along in their journey. I, I can just say internally we've taken it to heart. And uh, really it's about understanding who your different customers are in the various communities and I kind of glossed over this, but our customers are everybody from um, uh, victims of tragedies and their family members to other federal agencies that we share information with to other federal agencies that we um, uh, make safety recommendations to or or different industries like the aviation industry. But at the end of the day is understanding who they are and then then, um, listening, engaging, understanding what they need, and then meeting them there. And that's why I go back to data because it's pretty much – Everyone wants uh, access to data, and that's one of the internal challenges that we're trying to mature. And a guy mentioned the data strategy. You know, we've recently launched uh, ours, and it's really just following that roadmap. But uh, I'm sure there's some other points of view, and you might have an ulterior one, uh, alternative one, deep So I don't think I have an alternative one, but uh, we talk about customer. We've been talking about customer experience for years, even before the executive order, right? So we always try to say, hey. Who is this for, and how are we going to make their lives better? So I'll give you a couple of examples. And I, uh, so one, I, I talked about the labor certificate process, right? How the employers were waiting while we were printing these 16-page uh, labor certificates on currency-like paper and sending them. Okay, all of them land at DHS. There is no need for us to print these out. Now you will get it as a boarding pass. I call that customer experience, right? Every claimant in our Office of Workman Compensation claims had to wet sign their claim before they got paid off. We stopped that practice in one of our programs in energy uh, workman compensation claims, and now we will replicate that across the other, where we can, they can digitally sign these. Customer experience, right? Another place where I, I am really proud, uh, we all had a lot of unemployment during the pandemic. Uh, that's a federal-state partnership. Uh, 
I'm glad to say that we have now tied up with the United States Postal Service to provide ID uh, uh, verification services in 10 locations in Arkansas, and we are rapidly expanding it to, uh, across the country, right? What does that do? I am this guy who does, who, who's lost his job, needs to look for a job, but now has to do pro- prove their identity in order to get their unemployment check while doing it, right? 50 miles, 100 miles to the st- nearest state workforce agency, guess what? You can go to your, the United States Postal Service now within five miles of your house, and they will do the ID proofing. By the way, they deliver mail six times a, 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 a week to your place, right? That is customer experience to, I mean, this guy is exasperated, doesn't have a cell phone, doesn't have internet connections, is in the middle of the country. That's how we are looking at changing how we deliver services to the customers. But we shouldn't stop there. We should look at our employees, too. Because they are, they are in remote areas as well. Until we are able to give these tools and, and IT. And it, the non-digital pathways are equally important as the digital pathways. right? So this USPS is an IT play. We are connecting between the state of Arkansas's uh, UI system and the ID verification between uh, uh, the, the local post office there. It's an IT play for us. But it's a non-digital off-ramp to a person who may not even know what a cell phone looks like. And that was a collection of federal CIOs at a recent Tech panel with Federal News Network's Jason Miller. Find more episodes of Ask the CIO at federalnewsnetwork.com. Negotiating a continuing resolution is top of mind for Congress right now to avoid a federal shutdown. The House and Senate Appropriations Committees are far from an agreement, though, on agency spending levels for fiscal 2024, just a few weeks off, really. But that's just one of many items on Congress's to-do list this fall that could have big impacts for federal employees. Here with a roundup, Federal News Network's Drew Friedman. And let's talk about the shutdown question. Everyone I talk to, Drew, says, yeah, it's going to happen. We're kind of like laying back and letting the wave hit, and hopefully there's no sharks in it. There's a new bill that would maybe prevent this altogether. Tell us about that one. It's both a new and old bill. It's been reintroduced a couple of times now, at least. It's in both houses. Senator Tim Kaine, as well as Don Beyer in the House, both introduced this bill just a couple days ago. It's called the End Shutdowns Act. Essentially, it would automatically kick in a continuing resolution starting October 1st, so at the start of the new fiscal year, if Congress can't reach an agreement on appropriations. And at the same time, the bill would also bar the Senate from taking up legislation that's unrelated to government funding. So this is kind of an attempt to support federal employees. That's what the introducers said about their bill. And shutdowns do have some major impacts for federal employees. Mark Goldwine is Senior Vice President and Senior Policy Director for the Committee for a Responsible Federal Budget. A good share of federal employees will be sent home, and those that are deemed essential will continue to work temporarily without pay. Now, the good news for all of them is we've never had a government shutdown where they haven't ultimately gotten paid. So it may be a delay in their paychecks. It'd be extremely unlikely for them to not get their paychecks. But for those that are kind of counting on their paycheck at a specific moment in time, if the shutdown goes more than a couple of weeks, it can start to get it can start to get tough. Yeah, sure. This would not be the first time they've played that record. And there are some other bills still on the table that could impact feds, particularly one I think you and I have both written about this and followed this since time immemorial, seemingly, is the WEP and GPO, the Social Security deductions for certain federal employees. Right. So just as a recap, the WEP and GPO, there are two provisions of the 1935 Social Security Act, 
the windfall elimination provision reduces benefits or sometimes entirely eliminates them for some federal retirees. And then the government pension offset does the same for federal retirees, spouses and widows. There's a bill in Congress that's been around for quite some time, the Social Security Fairness Act. It gained a lot of bipartisan support last year, getting 305 co-sponsors ultimately, but was not enacted. This year, so far, the House version has 289 co-sponsors. So with just one more co-sponsor, it would reach that 290 co-sponsor threshold to force the Ways and Means Committee to take up the bill. So it's really close to that number. We'll see if the introducers of the bill would actually work towards a compromise before pushing it to that point. But it is gaining similar traction to what it did last year. There are several other bills as well that would similarly either reduce the impacts or fully repeal WEP and GPO, but the Social Security Fairness Act is the one that has the most traction at this point. Right. And we should point out there was a justification for the WEP and the GPO way back when because people were getting sources of income in retirement that were not related to contributions that they had not made to Social Security. So there could be some opposition that rises that we're not aware of on that. But again, like everything else on the Hill, it's wait and see. And uh, also drew some changes legislatively, possibly for the thrift savings plan. What's the latest here? There's a couple different bills here that would affect the TSP. They've been introduced, but not gained a ton of traction yet. There's one that is a policy writer in the House Appropriations Committee's Financial Services and General Government Bill for 2024. It's similar to the language of the No ESG and the TSP Act. That was something that was introduced earlier this year. Essentially, it would prohibit TSP's mutual fund window or any mutual funds that TSP participants can invest in from being based in environmental, social, or governance or ESG criteria. The Federal Retirement Thrift Investment Board has said this would most likely mean the end of the TSP's new mutual fund window. They can't keep track of the 5,000 plus funds that will be available. So that one is currently in the House's draft bill there, but not final yet. And then on the Senate side, there is an additional push to block TSP investments from going into China. That's a bill from Senator Marco Rubio that he's been pushing for a few years now. He proposed it as an amendment to the uh, National Defense Authorization Act this year, but ultimately it was not included. So not super likely for any of this to actually go through, but it is a concern for some groups like the National Active and Retired Federal Employees Association for One, or NARF, and John Haddon, staff vice president of policy and programs, explained why. Certainly sympathetic to policies aimed at you know, limiting investments in the Chinese national security establishment or limiting investments connected to human rights abuses. But there's better ways to do it without shutting off TSP investors of all iPhone securities. We're at a stage in the legislative process where these are not real threats for this year, but the continuing attention that has been drawn to the TSP, whether it's ESGs or China-related, just raises the likelihood that this may happen in the future. Well, the other question for the mutual fund window, whether it dies a natural death because people aren't using it, that's another question, not because of ESG or because of China, but just because of the fees, and you can buy instruments with much lower fees elsewhere. Again, we'll have to wait and see. Schedule F, back again in Congress's eyes, at least some members would like to bring back that Trump-era conversion of certain senior officials into fire at will. Correct. There is legislation on both sides of the coin here for Schedule F. 
you have a bill. There was one last year from Jody Heiss and one this year from Chip Roy, and they similarly would enact policies similar to Schedule F, which was a now revoked executive order from the Trump administration. On the other side of the coin, you have a bill from Senator Tim Kaine and Dianne Feinstein, and theirs would essentially block any future presidential administration from executing something similar to Schedule F. They did submit that bill as an amendment to the NDAA this year, language to prohibit the return of Schedule F, but it didn't gain enough to receive a vote. So, you know, there's signs that neither side here really on whether you're for or against Schedule F, that neither is really giving up on their support or not support of it. But it's unlikely we'll see either go through this fall. Right. So there is lineup on both sides of this tug of war of the best thing could happen, the rope would break and they would both give up. And maybe then we could finally stop hearing this uh, broken record, if I can mix my metaphors. And my final question is about that 5.2% civilian pay raise that the president has proposed. It's not in any of the bills yet. And therefore, Congress could either let it go by default, emphasize it. I guess they could make it 5.3% too, if they wanted to. Right. We haven't seen either the House or the Senate Appropriations Committees say anything about the civilian federal pay raise. And as you kind of alluded to, that means that they are largely aligning with or silently endorsing, so to speak, the president's plan for the 5.2% pay raise in 2024. Of course, there's still time for that to change, but right now it's not looking super likely. If not, then we would see President Biden sign an executive order on the pay raise at the end of December to be enacted in January for federal employees. All right. So a lot on the congressional plate, a lot to watch for as we fall towards the end of the fiscal year. Federal News Network's Drew Friedman, thanks so much. Thanks, Tom. And be sure to check out her story at federalnewsnetwork.com. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Temin. For the latest updates, stay with federalnewsnetwork.com or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. I'm Tom Temin. 